Nowadays, those companies stay even in the S&P 500 index for a much shorter period of time. Actually, anybody that would look at the turnover in the S&P 500 index alone, I think a lot of people would be surprised how quick it gets refreshed. So the S&P 500 of the year 2000 and of the year 2023, it's a very different index, especially if you look at the top five, top 10 businesses. So it's a constant change. And I think it makes investing interesting and exciting because the goal is not to find the three stocks at the age of 20 and hold on to them forever you might realize that you may have to continue to watch them make sure that the investment case still holds hi everyone welcome back to real talk when i have the opportunity to be able to interview brilliant investors content creators inspiring entrepreneurs as well as many amazing people in real talk we discuss how they got to where they are key strategies behind their success and engage in real and sometimes even challenging conversation with them so we can learn from their experience to become better investors and better individuals if it's the first time of you coming to my channel remember to hit the subscribe button as well as the notification bell so that you will not miss out any of my future investment updates. Today, I have the honor of inviting Bogumil Baranas, who is a professional investor with close to two decades of experience. Bogumil is the founding partner of Seacards Associates, a boutique investment firm based in New York City. He's also the author of Crisis Investing, an investment book that I thoroughly enjoy reading a lot and got a lot of investing insights from there. In this episode, we dive deep into his investment thoughts and delve into many interesting topics such as how to invest safely in this ever-changing world, Bogimil's perspective on investing in the US stock market amidst the rise of China, tips and strategies to cultivate emotional stability, and the most recent key takeaway from the recent Warren Buffett Berkshire AGM. I hope you enjoyed this genuine conversation and learned as much from Bogimil as I did. Now let's roll the conversation. Hi, Chloe. So nice to see you. Thank you for having me and thank you for all the kind words and a beautiful introduction. I was really looking forward to this conversation. Yes, I've been looking for, forward to it for months. You know, like, ah, I'm, so, <laughs> I'm so surprised when you actually reached out to me via LinkedIn and you actually accepted my interview. It's a really an honor of me yeah, to be able to have you here. I, I love talking about investing and I'm passionate about it, although I've been doing it for two decades. And I always have fun talking to people that are discovering investing, learning about investing, meeting fellow investors. It's always fun to talk to people around the world that are curious about how it all works. That's perfect. So I'm going to ask you the first question, which is um, because I've been reading your book and I got so many very little golden insights along the way. And some of them really just uh, struck me a lot. Like, for example, one of the things that you wrote is you believe in the quality of sleep is the best test of uh, any investment that uh, we will make, right? So, but we also know that business are constantly changing. How are you able to uh, analyze, especially in the area of technological sector, it's constantly changing. How do you then, or does your fund um, invest in, um, do you invest in technology-based company or how do you analyze it so that you know the business they're going to invest in have this capability to last with time and give you and your clients the confidence to continue to invest uh, in this ever-changing future. So I think it's a terrific question. And we do invest in technology and we do care about our quality of sleep and the quality of sleep of our clients. So just to give you a bit of a a background of what we do. So we manage money for wealthy individuals, mostly families. Most of the clients have had wealth for multiple generations. 
and then your clients created wealth in this lifetime and they aspire to see this wealth last their lifetime and hopefully beyond over multiple generations. So it sets a certain framework. It's the money they don't immediately need mm. and it's money that they can't afford to lose. They can't make it back. Yeah. So it both allows us to pursue certain opportunities, but it also reminds us that there are certain risks we're not willing to accept. So it sets a certain framework for us to operate in. Now, the quality of sleep specifically, there are two sides to your question. So first of all, when I think of an investment, we have what I call a no zero policy. When we buy an investment, I don't want to buy anything that I could imagine going to zero, which eliminates, it's an amazing filter that eliminates a lot of ideas. We might be missing out on some opportunities, but we don't want to have total blowups in the portfolio. And here it's not necessarily a total zero, but a 90% decline, 80% decline, 70% decline. These are very hard to recover losses. And then we can talk more about the sources of those, but usually it's too much leverage, a circular decline in the industry, and quite often questionable management. The mm -hmm. fascinating thing is that all three can happen at the same time. You might have a questionable management that's borrowing a lot of money to cover up a secular decline. By secular decline, I mean an industry that's shrinking, 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 and eventually might go away, which is related to the second part of your question about technology. So the quality of sleep is the idea that on any given day, everything that I have in the portfolio, if I couldn't trade in this portfolio for a year because I was stranded on an island, I would sleep well. That's how I look at it. So there's nothing in it that I have to check on first thing Monday morning just to make sure they didn't go down too much. I think that's that's the best test for me. And Buffett sometimes jokes that he could have the market closed for months or years and he would be fine holding it. So it's a very similar approach. I see. Now it's, yes. Go ahead. Yeah. So does it mean that like um like the companies, the majority of the your your funds portfolio, would it be in more predictable business that have been around for a long time? And that's why give you that kind of confidence that this business will still continue to thrive in the future. That's the idea. So the idea is to compound wealth at a respectable rate over the long run. So it's kind of a slow and steady approach. And if you have already substantial capital and then you have time, as the families we work with do, then the rate of return doesn't have to be very, very high. It just has to be respectable. And it's a different rate that different people have in mind. But if you do it year after year after year, you can imagine how the wealth will double and double every five or 15 years, whatever that interest that return would be. So that gives us peace of mind, that gives us time, but it also allows us to take a longer term view on an investment. We can buy something and hold it for three, five years, I mean, ideally, I would like to buy something and never sell. And Buffett has done it, and, and a handful of investors have done it. And they buy it and never sell. But it goes back to your question about technology. So businesses are subject to change, all kinds of change. Even during COVID, we noticed how consumer behavior has changed, how we shop, how we spend time, even how we work, that we more people work from home. We travel differently. There's less business travel, there are longer stays, there are remote workers, there are digital nomads, uh, there are all kinds of new phenomena in how we spend money. And it's all affecting businesses, even streaming video at home. 
the adoption rate went up. The use of video call, like the one we're using now, the adoption rate went mm. up. Some meetings that back in the day, somebody would fly coast to coast in the US. Now they say, how about we do it over Zoom? The cost saving, the time saving, it's incredible when you think about it. Some meetings I think we still have to do in person. Some meetings I think we're better off uh, over Zoom. So technological change, it's on our minds all the time. And there are some extreme stories. You've heard of Kodak, film camera company, that was a market share leader for, I think, almost 100 years. And it became almost a, a, a verb, an expression, a Kodak moment, the same way we use uh, other names of companies as verbs these days, you know, Instagram this or Instagram that. But the business went away at some point. Digital cameras came in and, and the business just disappeared. So it's something that we carefully watch. That's why one of the things I mentioned was secular decline. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at a business and you're trying to buy it at a lower price, you might um, misinterpret a secular decline for just a cyclical weakness. So you might think that those few weaker quarters or few weaker years are just a cyclical downturn. But what is really happening is the consumer behavior has changed, maybe new technology came in, and the business is not as good as it used to be. So that's something that we're definitely watching. And one more thing on that topic, when you look at the number of years that major companies belong to the top 100, 500, in the 1950s, long before you and I, <laughs> in history books, we can read about it, Companies would belong to the top companies for decades. They would be among those for you know, three, four, five decades. And there are statistics that you can look up that show it. Nowadays, those companies stay even in the S&P 500 index for a much shorter period of time. Mm. Actually, anybody that would look at the turnover in the S&P 500 index alone, I think a lot of people would be surprised how quick it gets refreshed. So the S&P 500 of the year 2000 and of the year 2023 it's a very different index, especially if you look at the top five, top 10 mm. businesses. So it's a constant change. And I think it makes investing interesting and exciting because the goal is not to find the three stocks at the age of 20 and hold on to them forever. You might realize that you may have to continue to watch them, make sure that the investment case still holds and no substantial change happened that would undermine your investment case. So this quality of sleep is market turnoff for a year or two. That technological change, I think that's something that we can and we have to watch. But it gets me excited because I see even in the last you know, five, 10 years, the innovation, the new businesses, the new way of doing things. I think it's remarkable. And I can only think of all kinds of new businesses that will be created in places that we can't even imagine. And I think COVID was a difficult period, but I think the creative flow and wave that happened during COVID will show up in many different you know, publicly traded companies in the next 5, 10, 15 years. I'm, I'm really curious where they will go, whether it will be AI or anything that has moved online in a substantial way. I'm very curious to see where it goes. So I'm, I'm excited about also the new companies that we don't even know about yet. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, I think I'm super excited as well. I think just like what you say just now, uh, you were saying that like COVID literally like like the history of COVID, how it has um like a lot so many events happen, and it's what something that we should experience in like three decades. But then we we experience it in a short period of three years, and and that's why there's like what you said, there's a lot of opportunities being created at the same time. So I'm personally also very excited for that, and I just. 
I was just saying that how I wish I read your book <laughs> back then in 2020 and 2021. And because when I was reading your book, it really brought me back to the, the past of the emotional roller coaster that I personally went through as an investor, how the stocks plummet so much. And then within that few months, the visual recovery happened. And you were just saying that, you know, like the stock price just after that keep on going up. And at the same time, so many companies do not have the right profits to sustain it. And it just doesn't even make sense. And I think there was such a good reminder of, of me to be able to look back right now of how I invest. I could have done so much better. And that's why I felt like, wow, I, I should have read your book way earlier as well. So the book is a collection of essays that I wrote right before the pandemic and throughout the pandemic. And the essays were written for our clients. And at some point I thought I'll share them with a larger audience. And the reaction was really overwhelming. And, and I was happy to see that, that people would ask me if I can send those older essays from a few years ago, which is fairly unusual because people don't ask about all the articles, but they were so timely and timeless at the same time yeah. that I started to collect them and send 10 and then 20. And then I realized there were about a hundred essays that I wrote. And somebody asked me, can you just put it in a book? Well, it's a whole project, but I ended up putting it into a book. And I thought, for me, it was a very therapeutic and educational experience to read what I was thinking in those moments and actually feel what was happening and how I had to make decisions. In the essays, there are no specific stocks mentioned for compliance reasons, mm. but it's mostly the philosophy, the principles, and the psychology of what was happening, what we knew at the time. And obviously, we could not know the future, but with what we knew, what we decided to do. To do. That's yeah. the essence of the book. Yeah, I, I really like the way that you say it's timely, but at the same time, it's timeless. I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> so um, maybe I can ask you the second question since it's about you know COVID at the same time, right? And we know right. that there are also some companies that have not really recovered um, mm -hmm. still, like since the COVID pandemic and everything. And sometimes these companies are good businesses that probably can take a long time to recover. Right. So is any certain timeline that you give to your fund or to yourself um, that you give this company the time to prove itself? Or or do would you make a decision to eventually cut because it's a losing position for a long period of time? So when you say losing, you mean the price decline. Yeah. Yeah, decline. So it's it's a price loss that you're looking at. Yes. The the fascinating thing is that and, and there are no rules, but I would say that quite a few good ideas or best ideas that worked out were what I would call dead money for a while. So we tried to buy businesses that are of quality and it, there's a lot list of things that we're looking for, but we tried to buy them when they're cheap, down and out of favor. I think it gives us an opportunity to capture a bigger upside and also limit the downside since the stock is already down. And we, we look for situations where that decline happens for some short-lived reasons, something that can be fixed, something that is cyclical, something that has not caused a permanent damage to the business. And in that time when we buy, we give ourselves a lot of time to buy. And it be depends on the situation. So March 2020 was a sudden decline in the market, and we knew that it may not last too long. So in moments like this, we know what we want to buy ahead of time, and we just act on it relatively quickly. So that's one 
end of the range here. But usually when the market is just moving along, there's nothing really dramatic happening, you usually have quite a bit of time to build your position. If you're doing it over time, you give yourself a chance to buy it at a potentially lower price, maybe a bit lower price. Usually the market needs time to fully absorb even the short-lived mm. problem. Mm. So it might be a few quarters when they mention, for example, they launched a product. It was the wrong product. They are taking it off the shelves. The business is still fine, but that product will wash out through three, four, five quarters. And the market is very short-term focused. So for the next three, four quarters, you might see the price not going anywhere or the price declining. So this is a, a buying opportunity for us as long as we believe in the business. Now, I think the big distinction is between the price and the value. And it's something that's very intuitive to some investors and some investors need a minute to embrace it. And the difference is that the price is what you pay and the value is what you get. Buffett talks about it all the time. I can't take credit for it. I think he has an instinct to, for, for distinguishing between the price and the value. But think of it this way. A lot of things can have a price, but have no real value. In the investment world, the value means some sort of a potential to produce income. Income meaning earnings and, and cash flows. So why would you hold shares in any business? You would hold the shares because you assume that it will produce earnings and cash flows either already today or in the foreseeable future. That's the reason to own a business. There's no other reason to own a business. So if you forget the stock market for a second, and if there's no official daily price available, if you and I are looking at a privately held business, somebody will show us the financials, we have an ongoing conversation, we try to understand why they want to sell, what is it that they sell, what kind of a business it is. And we come up with some sort of a price we're willing to pay for the value that we get. Public market is different in the sense that there is a daily quote, there's an anonymous crowd showing up daily with very different objectives, with different patience, with different time horizons. And anytime you're buying a share of a company, remember that somebody's selling you a share of the company. So right this minute, you have at least two participants if you silence the rest of the market, but you at least have two participants one, you and I are deciding to acquire 100 shares and somebody on the other side just decided to sell 100 shares. We all have access to the same information. We are all looking at the same price. We all woke up today and we decided to do buy and sell. So always think about who is on the other side of it. And you might realize that you are the one that's buying the stock for five years the person that's selling might have received those shares as an inheritance and is in the market to buy a house and they're selling those shares. So their reason for the sale has nothing to do with the fundamentals, right? You have to remember that people have all kinds of incentives and reasons to participate in the market. Mm -hmm. But the beauty of the market is that it doesn't really care, you know, your gender, your age, your experience. Everybody has the same chance to go in and buy shares of businesses. I think I would really like to emphasize the concept that stocks are small pieces of businesses. I read this in One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch that I talk about quite a bit, the first mm -hmm. book that I, I read when I was studying business, economics, finance, and I didn't know exactly what I will do. And that book really spoke to me. Mm -hmm. And when you have the idea that you're buying a small piece of a business, I think your relationship with this investment is very different. Back to your question, you see a decline. If you strongly believe that the fundamentals are doing well 
that you have good reasons to hold it for the long term. I think you have to use to the fact that some of your investments will be in this dreadful drawdown stage where you will have a paper loss in it for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And actually, if I still believe in the case, I get excited about it because it gives me a chance to buy more shares. So when you think about it, the first instinct is to see the stock go up the day after you buy it. But when you really think about it, it's more beneficial to see the price go down. Now you have to be honest with yourself. And if you did the research, you checked all the facts and the story has changed, something else has happened. A new competitor, the market is they are operating in is not as good as you thought. Something else is happening or the management is not as trustworthy as you thought. It's okay to change your mind about an investment. I think it's a very important thing to know that you can change your mind about an investment. Mm -hmm. Just don't do it the second day. <laughs> give, it, mm -hmm. give it a chance unless you really made a huge mistake and you bought the wrong thing, which I hope you don't do after doing all the research and fact checking. Mm -hmm. I see. Wow. I, I think like what you said, like having the business owner mindset, buying that small piece of business. And I think most importantly, it's I can really see you're such a patient investor that you buy patiently and you also hold on to the business as long as you've done your research and the fundamentals still sounds, you still you also hold on to it patiently. And that's how you can have that kind of investment as a success that you are enjoying today. So Chloe, I have to tell you a little story. I, I had on my podcast talking billions, billions uh, Chris Mayer. And Chris Mayer wrote A Hundred Beggars, yeah. a book about companies that can go a hundred times. Yeah, And it's a book inspired by an older book in the same theme from, from 40, 50 years ago. But in my conversation, and I think it's worth exploring for anybody curious, he says how those companies have gone up a hundred times, but it wasn't a straight line. And on that journey, they had 30, 50, and even bigger declines. So for you to participate in compounding of a company like that, even Berkshire Hathaway that went down 50% multiple times in the last you know, 50, 60 years, you have to accept that there will be times where you will have a paper loss in it. So as long as you believe and you have reasons to believe that the fundamentals are right and the business is right, you might have to experience and go through those kinds of drawdowns. I think what happens is, and the worst thing that can happen in terms of long-term results is you try to get out when it's really uncomfortable and get back in when it's very comfortable. So you want to get out because the market has gone down and you just can't look at it anymore. And you go back in when all your friends are telling you how rich they're getting owning stocks. <laughs> That's a recipe <laughs> for a big disappointment. Try to do the opposite. That's right. Wow. Th thanks for the very good um, summary. And and I think that's what also the Buffett said, right? Like if you are, uh, if you love to eat hamburger, would you like to buy the hamburger when, when it's cheap or, or expensive? And of course we want to buy it cheap, but then mm -hmm. it, we do the reverse. When we go to the stock market, we are happy when the stock price go up and then we are sad when the stock price comes down, which is illogical. <laughs> Well, you're touching on something really interesting. And I think Munger said that sometimes stocks trade like Rembrandts, like expensive paintings or like luxury goods. Mm. And there's something about the psychology of how we shop. There are moments where we're value shoppers and then we're shopping for luxury. And if you want to buy something that's considered a luxurious good, when it's half off, 
it loses its charm. You start to doubt why is it a luxury good if it's on sale. You don't really have sales at luxury goods stores, right? Yeah. <laughs> so when you go to the stock market, if you look at stocks not as luxury goods, but more as those hamburgers that you talk about, something more you know common, and see them as small pieces of pieces of businesses, you want to buy them when they're on sale. Don't see them as a expensive watch or a Rembrandt painting. See them as a restaurant meal or a burger that you mentioned. Just see them as attractive when they're on sale. Wow. Yeah. That I I I think that is a very good um like um yeah analogy that instead mm -hmm. of looking at it as luxury goods, yeah, look at it as a daily daily necessity that we buy. And of course when we want to buy it when it's under discount. Yeah, I think that's great. Can I ask you a question? I'd love to learn more about Chloe, and I have a few sure. questions for you. So if if you let me, I always like to find out a little bit more about my guests. And I ask them about their childhood and upbringing. And I'm always curious if you indulge me and tell me maybe how you think that time influenced your relationship with money and then how it led you to this career and sparked this interest in the world of investing. Wow, thanks. I, I think it's always, always a very insightful question. I've been listening to your podcast and I also realized there are so many interesting uh, background that many of your guests have. For myself, I actually grew up in China. And mm -hmm. um, at that time, because my parents were constant, constantly away from home, so I was actually very close to my grandma. And, you know, being grandma, they all have this habit of being very thrifty. So I still mm -hmm. remember that back then we take bars, um, Instead of taking bus, my grandma wants to save that 20 cents. And instead, we will actually walk a, a, a few blocks, you know, a few distance in order to go back home and go back to the destination. So I think I have, I inherit this trait of uh, being thrifty since young because of my grandma's influence. And I think it's a very good habit because, uh, because of that, I think I have more savings uh, as compared to my peers um, at the age of 20 plus to 30 years old. And but what truly triggered me to want to start investing is uh, when I was about to graduate from university that year, my father got retrenched and he has never invested anything before in the stock market. And all his time, he just wanted to make sure he collect active income. But that made me realize that if I continue the same path as him, maybe in the future, if things happen, if mm -hmm. I get retrenched, then my family will probably face the same problem again. And that's when I start to brainstorm about what are the ways to really have an alternative source of income to mm -hmm. eventually be able to take good care of my family. And that's how I started my investment journey. But I think just like many investors out there, I've been through a lot of ups and downs. And right now I'm still trying to control my emotion, learn from many great investors like you and to really anchor myself and remind myself what is the true principle of value investing. Um, but I think uh, over these few years, uh, I started investing since 2015. I have grown as uh, an investor and I'm looking forward for more growth in the future as well. So I, I love hearing that story. And I think a lot of my guests, including myself, have a, a grandma or a family member that instilled in us. I think it's not just thrift, but it's also the price and value perception mm. of the world. And I think that 
really helps, especially if you think about money and investing. And it allows you to see things in a different way. And I like that you started your journey. And I would add to it that there is a huge benefit in seeing investing as a lifelong pursuit. Mm. I think a lot of people join the investment world because it's exciting at the time. There's been a few years of a bull market. They've heard stories of friends that with very little effort made a lot of money, usually in one single stock, which is more like a lottery win than an actual investing process, as you may imagine. Yeah. But if you think of it as a lifelong pursuit and you have an outside income of some sort and you can put away some portion of it regularly, and then you can put some of it in the market, even in a passive index way at the beginning as you're mm -hmm. learning, and you do it regularly over a long period of time, as automated and the least time-consuming as you want, or as time-consuming as you can, then over time, that money will compound and grow. And at the beginning, it may seem not like a lot, but I'm reminded of Buffett that he made 98 or 99% of the wealth that he has after the age of 65. Compounding yeah. is a very... Uh, you know, late kind of weighted uh, process. So in the later years, the amounts grow even more because it's growth on top of growth on top of growth. Compounding is such a fascinating concept. There's the story of the one grain of rice on a chessboard. It doubles with every move. And it's uh, so many tons of rice at the end of the chessboard just by doubling one single grain. And that's how compounding works. The second thing I want to say is that if you allow yourself to do it over a lifetime, you give yourself time to continue to learn. So in your first year, you're going to walk away with those three lessons, then the next three lessons. The challenge that our clients have is that they might be in a position of what I call sudden wealth, whether it's inherited or it happens through a sale of a business or a very favorable compensation at usually a large company, these days usually a tech company as you can imagine. So overnight, they're responsible for an amount of money that they will likely not be able to replicate. Mm. I wish, I mean, I wish them obviously the best and I hope they can do it all over again, but I think they have a realization that this might be money that they can't afford to lose and they have to make some decisions and learn very quickly or have somebody capable that will help them get up to speed very quickly. Now, if you're investing over many, many decades, you have all the time in the world to learn. People of sudden wealth events that I wish happened to more people, I think it's, it's life-changing and I hope it's more positive than anything. You have to learn quickly. You kind of have to know everything uh, right away. That's the difference in uh, the phenomena. In I think that lifelong investing is it's a wonderful journey but if it's sudden wealth, I think you have to get up to speed very, very quickly and make sure you you don't make mistakes. But yeah. I can tell you more about it in, in later questions if you're curious about that I'm aspect. I'm definitely curious. And I think that's why you, because when you guys are responsible for your client's wealth, it's even more important that, like what you say, this is the money that they cannot afford to lose. And that's why you guys practice the amount of caution and the amount of diligence before investing to to be responsible for their money. I think that is a huge responsibility. And, mm -hmm. and that's why I also, my next question for you will be like, how do you then detach yourself from all those chaos happening in the stock market? Right? And, and like at the same time, um, 
because we like Warren Buffett said, right? Like the emotion, like being emotional detached is actually the most important thing, but it's the hardest thing to do. How do you cultivate this habit to ingrain in you, to make you to be so emotionless at the same time, so calm in this chaos uh, stock market? So I, I think it's a, a billion dollar question. So I'll do my best. But Buffett was asked about emotions even this year at the annual meeting where you were as well. I'm curious to hear about your impression of the meeting and, and Buffett in, in person. I was reading many books uh, when I got started and Peter Lynch's book was one of them. And at some point I discovered Buffett and, and Ben Graham. Ben Graham was Buffett's mentor. And Ben Graham wrote a book, Intelligent Investor. It's a little dated, but I think it's still a very relevant book that explains the discipline, the principles. But the golden nugget is in the introduction to the book that a lot of people might skip or miss. So if you read the book, saw the book, go back and read the foreword to Intelligent Investor written by Warren Buffett himself. And he says that in the book, you'll find the intellectual framework that takes to become a successful investor. But he says the book doesn't include the emotional framework. That's something you have to provide yourself. Mm -hmm. And when I read it, I thought, this is something I will really need, the emotional framework. Mm -hmm. I thought that if I, I read enough, if I study enough, if I research enough, if I look at enough companies, I can get the technical side, analyzing a balance sheet, analyzing all the statements, reading an annual report, understanding the management, the strategy, the modes, the competitive landscape. I thought I can learn it and get really good at it, especially after researching hundreds and hundreds of companies in many different industries around the world. Mm. But then the emotional side, I thought this will take some extra effort. And I think we all have a certain predisposition. Some of us are more emotional, less emotional. And then there's a whole world of money. So you might be very emotional in other places of your life. And I think Buffett pointed it out. He is an emotional person and he clearly has a heart and he clearly is very affectionate with his family. And he has a lot of empathy. If you, if you followed his work and, and life outside of investing, he had a lot of empathy for for people in general, employees of companies that he owned. And he had a hard time when he had to close down the original textile mill business and, and a shoe company at some point. So a very empathetic business leader, I think that we need in the world with a lot of kindness. But at the same time, when you're investing, and especially if you're investing in the public market where you have a daily quote, so it's not even a daily quote, it's minute to minute, second to second, you can see what's happening with the price. And if a, if a substantial portion of your net worth in, this, in the stock market, you can see your net worth move up and down <laughs> throughout the day. And that's the kind of emotion that's a lot harder to deal with. I actually know very successful people that started businesses that operated in the private market. So they never had a public price quote. And when you run a business like this, you focus on what you should focus on, which is the cash flows, the revenue, the growth. But if somebody asks you, how much is this business worth? How much would it sell for? A lot of business owners don't really know. They might hear, oh, a peer just sold for this much, but they don't know. Mm. But if you own a publicly traded business, every minute you know the price and it somehow gets to us. Now, if you know that you have trouble dealing with a daily price quote, 
there are many different tricks and things that you can do and practices that you can deploy. Some people, for example, don't check the price quote throughout the day. Some people check in only when they choose to buy or sell. So they did some research. They want to buy a little bit more of the company they like. Then they go back in and see what the price is. If the price makes sense, they act on it. So that's one of the things you can do. And some investors are very disciplined about not checking the prices. Mm -hmm. Now, second thing is, it's not just the price, but the information flow. And not inform all information that you get out there is valuable or helpful. There is this idea that if whatever you're learning has a longer shelf life, so if you tell me something you learn about a business and I tell you, Chloe, would this be relevant five years from now? And you tell me, yes, this will change the way this business operates. That's a long shelf life piece mm -hmm. of information. But if we talk about something and I share with you some rumor that uh, we've heard about the, the upcoming earnings, it looks like it will be a weaker quarter. Well, it's a very short-lived piece of information. Maybe somebody's right, maybe somebody's wrong. These days, everybody has an ob opinion. Everybody has a blog. Mm -hmm. Everybody can share their views. Everybody tweets. So there's an unlimited amount of opinion about earnings, businesses, and everything you can think of. So you have to have a very good filter of what is really relevant to you as an investor. Some people choose, and I've heard it from some of the guests on my podcast, how they read the news for only 15 minutes a day, and then they, they have a cutoff. So they just want to know what's the headline of today, and they move on to the long shelf life knowledge, which is the annual report, something about the industry, maybe an interview with the CEO, maybe a transcript from the last investor meeting, something that has a longer impact on why are they holding this business or why would they continue to buy more? So that's the things that people do. The, the third group would be, so the price, the information, and the third one is a certain environment that you create for yourself. And you'll see a theme also among the guests on my podcast, but also investors that you might already know. Buffett moved out of New York City. Mm. And New York City at the time, we're talking about 1960s, was the financial capital of the world. And he packed up and went back to Omaha. You've seen Omaha today. Yeah. You can only imagine how Omaha looked like in the 1960s. Is that the financial capital of the world? <laughs> Maybe for that one weekend, for that one weekend in May. Yeah. <laughs> but but Omaha is, is a very quiet town. city. Yeah. Or town. And uh, it has uh, farmlands all around. It's very peaceful. It's very quiet. And every investor picks a place for themselves. Mm. Buffett clearly liked it. His family was from the area. His kids went to local schools. I actually had uh, Todd Finkel, who wrote a Buffett uh, book about his entrepreneurial streak on the podcast, who went to school with Buffett's son. He has some amazing stories to share. And I think you might know Todd Finkel or know of Todd Finkel as well, the author. But anyways, Buck uh, chose a place. Then you have Guy Spear, who was also a guest on my podcast that I know that you know. And he chose to leave New York City and move to Zurich. Hmm. Well, Zurich is not Omaha, but Zurich is a very quiet, very structured, very peaceful place to operate. It has a lake, it has mountains, all the trains run on time. And you can kind of forget about everything else and focus on 
reading and researching. You have no brokers uh, knocking on your door mm. and you can find all the peace and quiet. So he found an environment that works for him. And the last example I'll give you that I really like is Sir John Templeton. Sir John Templeton, I'm sure you know the name. Yeah. I had Lauren Templeton on my podcast that uh, is a grandniece of Sir John Templeton and with her, her husband, Scott Phillips, who was also yeah. a guest. We had a wonderful conversation about Sir John. Sir John was the buffet of you know 50 years ago. He had big events where people would come and ask him about life philosophy and investing. And he was a hugely successful global investor. And I think that's what you're also curious about investing in the US or investing globally. He would go after the most attractive markets around the world. Mm -hmm. There's so much, there's so much about Sir John, but one thing that's related to this particular question, he left New York City in the 1950s, 1960s, a little bit ahead of Buffett. And uh, he was born before Buffett. So he's longer with us, although he lived a very long life. And he moved to the Bahamas. Mm. And he mentions a couple of things that, that Lauren mentioned to me was that he would get the Wall Street Journal New York edition a few days late in the Bahamas, mm. which would allow him not to act on the immediate headlines news. It would give him the time to react to the news. Mm. And it's, it's also a good filter. So if you see a headline that disturbs you and you want to act on it, Give yourself a day or two and see if you still feel the same way. Last thing about him, a funny anecdote that uh, Lauren mentioned was that he would use a payphone in the Bahamas, which is a small Caribbean island, to call the broker to put in the trades. So it was actually, he had some sort of an obstacle to act quickly on the yeah. ideas because there was a payphone and a whole process to call New York to put the trade in. You couldn't just run across the floor and have something sold very quickly. So when you think about it, he actually admits that he became a better investor after he left New York. He could actually hear his own thoughts. That's all I have to say, but there's so much more to talk about how you can manage your emotions and how you can manage the daily quote, how you can create the right environment, put in the right filters so that you can operate better, even if initially you have a hard time with the volatility of the market and the noise and all the distractions. And I think like for some reason, when I went to Omaha this time, I can literally feel that refreshment and uh, the lightness in the air. It's it's mm -hmm. more like a good psychologically, but you just feel like, wow, you know, like people there, uh, some of the investors I talked to, they've been holding on to Berkshire stock A since like 20, 30 years ago. And I just think that, oh, maybe because they live in Omaha, they kind of have more patience um, knowing that Buffett is there. I, I'm not sure, but I just kind of feel <laughs> that it's a very special place. It's a very special place. So this was your first meeting? Yeah, it's my first time. So what are your impressions? If somebody is listening and they've never been, what's it like to go to the meeting? I, I loved it. I had a lot of fun, but I'm curious to hear your opinion. Um, I really feel that every investor should go because when you go to Berkshire AGM, you feel that it's kind of like a church for investors, <laughs> the way to describe it. <laughs> but it's like you feel that the energy is very different. And I truly feel, wow, Buffett and Munger, they're so sincere. They're so mm -hmm. down to earth, so humble. And at the same mm -hmm. time, like what you say, even though they can be emotionless in the stock market, but 
they are truly kind people. Like you can literally feel it when they, the way that they address the questions, address the crowd. And it just really made me rethink about, wow, do I know the company management well enough for some of the company's positions I, I, I have right now? And I just compare the integrity of the management versus Buffer and Munger. And I just feel that, wow, they are really one of the kind that you have so much confidence and faith and trust in these people. And that's why you know that they are going to take good care of you as a shareholder versus mm-hmm. some of the company management I probably have not read enough. I have not studied enough. And it really made me rethink about like not just investing in the company on a surface level, but also really going deeper in the management level. There's a wonderful collection of Buffett's essays that was collected by Lawrence Cunningham. I don't know if you've seen the book and a new edition came out that I I picked up actually in Omaha. And it's everything that you say, which are the lessons that Buffett shares in such a generous way in his letters, in his meetings. And I think a lot of managements could learn in terms of how you treat the shareholder, but also how you treat your business partners. Mm. Part of Buffett's uh, strategy is to acquire entire businesses. And in that that case, um, in many situations, the original management stays. So when you think about it, you really have to treat them very well. So they feel that they were compensated for the sale of a big portion or the entire business. So they want to stay and still run the business and be a part of Berkshire. And I wrote an article coming back from Omaha, The Return on Kindness. I don't know if you saw it. I read that, yes. And I thought if I could summarize everything I learned, at this particular meeting that I think only reminded me of what I, I've heard new and absorbed from Buffett and Munger before is that the kindness pays off in the long run. Mm. You know, we're taught that, or I think we're under the impression that the business is competitive, you have to cut corners, you have to out uh, out race everybody. But at the end of the day, Buffett coexists with all those businesses that he owns. And since he treated everybody so well, People are willing to go the extra mile and continue to help Berkshire grow the businesses, mm. add new opportunities. It's a whole environment and a network. And I think what I saw in Omaha, and I ran into so many friends that I haven't seen in a while, mostly mm. because of COVID, is that it's a small world and that kindness comes back to you. And I think it's a wonderful lesson for all of us that, yes, it's a competitive business, but it's nice to have friends in the world. Yeah, wow, I, I really love the way that you describe kind like Buffett, right? Kindness pays off in the long run. And yeah, there's so much to learn from, not just the investing lesson from them, but like how they live their life. Um their their character is what mm-hmm. really makes them very remarkable people. Well, Buffett says how you you build your reputation over a lifetime and then you can lose it in one day with one headline. Yes. He mentions also Salomon Brothers that he owned at some point that had some reputational issues at some point. And and Buffett came in and helped restore this investment bank trading house back in the day. And I think there was a lesson there that in business, trust and confidence is really important. And if people can trust you, whether you're managing their money, whether you're managing a business for them, and how you treat your shareholders and everybody involved, I think it really matters. And I think uh, what we would need also, I think what would help for a lot of businesses is for the the CEOs to stay in place longer. Mm-hmm. Buffett has been in place for so long. Yeah. So the decision that he makes, they have a long-term impact. 
if you have rotating CEOs that come and go after two, three years, that's not long enough for them to really see the benefit of the work that they do. But that's a whole other topic that I would love to see long-term managements running long-term strategies in businesses that could really hold for a long time. I think that would be really beneficial for everybody and they're harder to find, but that's one of the filters that we look at. Nice. All right. Thanks for dropping the golden nuggets <laughs> along the way. <laughs> and since we are talking about uh, Warren Buffett, what he said in the Berkshire AGM, and I clearly remember Buffett did talk about, like he said he never bet against America, right? Mm-hmm. And I can see that he's still very bullish uh, towards the US economy. However, there are also other investors like Ray Dalio who discuss about the changing global power. The US seems to be on a gradual decline while China is uh, like trying, like it's going to almost like going to take over the kind of uh, momentum. So what's your view on this? Um, does your fund invest in other countries so that to diversify and balance these risks as well? So many, many questions in one, but uh, we have a global mandate so we can invest globally. We mostly invest in the US. It's uh, our domestic market that we know very well. It's also a very big market, very liquid market, very diversified. It's also a big economy where new concepts can be tested. It's also a market that attracts foreign startups to actually move their operations to the US. I'm thinking specifically of, for example, Spotify. It was started in Sweden, but now it's headquartered in the US. The main listing is in the US. The most of the capital shareholder base is in the US. So when you think about it, US has a a massive gravitational pool Mm -hmm. that brings in the talent, the capital, the money, and it kind of starts to feed on itself because it's since it's so large, it's a big market to exit with an IPO. It's a big market to raise capital. It's a big market to have a long-term shareholder base. There are a lot of people trading, but there's also a very long shareholder base as well in the US. And usually the fascinating thing is if you look throughout history, if you had a successful retail concept, Peter Lynch in his book, One Up on Wall Street, makes some really good examples. I highly recommend the book. If something works in one state in the US, for example, a certain you know hotel chain, mm-hmm. then immediately they decide to open it in the next state, in the next state, in, in no time, if the concept works, it probably works all over the United States. Mm-hmm. So you have a big market of 300 some people that you can sell the service or the product to. Now, you talked about technology at the beginning. The fascinating thing is that some of the companies that go public in recent years, by the time they go public, they already have business in a hundred some countries. It's almost a rule. And it's actually an exception to find a US listed company that has a hundred percent of its business only in the US. And if it's the case, it's usually because of a, an unusual industry. I can think of one or two companies and without mentioning names, they could be, for example, a restaurant supplier. So they supply their you know, logistics and, and so on. And they're very concentrated on on one big market and they don't really feel like they have a competitive advantage to go to other markets and replicate it. But it's more of an exception when you really look at companies, especially within the S&P 500. But not only, there are some smaller companies that are fairly global already at the onset. There are a couple of things that are happening with technology. You can make the service available very quickly around the globe and you don't have uh, you know local equivalents 
you have a, usually a US or a global brand that's providing the same service around the world. So it's fascinating how it becomes global. So when even if you, let's say, told me you can only invest in the US, the S&P 500, I think by now about half of the, the profits and sales are non-US. So I might be holding shares of companies that are present in the US, headquartered in the US, managed out of the US, but in some cases they could have 70, 80% of the profit. So they're benefiting from growth in emerging markets, from growth in a variety of markets around the world, but I'm treated the way I'm treated as a shareholder because it's a, a US company with a US disclosure, US regulations, US way of, of thinking, operating. So I feel protected and well-treated. That's that's the aspiration. So that's what I get from the U.S. market. I know very successful investors that know their domestic markets very well and invest, for example, only in Italy or only in Thailand. And they're very close to those markets. They grew up in those parts of the world. They know the business owners. Sometimes the businesses that they buy, they're the second uh, shareholder after the family that founded the business or they're in the top shareholder group. So they have a different kind of advantage than I would have sitting in New York. And as long as you know, as an investor, what kind of your you know, circle of competence that Buffett, borrowing from him again, what it is, then you can go and benefit from that kind of an edge that you have in those local markets. You might speak the language, you might understand the culture better. And I think there are just many different ways to succeed in investing and, and you just have to pick the one that works for you. I think that the whole world is a very exciting place to, to invest in. And I think that there's room for growth for the US, there's room for growth for, for China with incomes going up, you know, people getting educated, people creating new businesses, there's huge innovation. The exciting part about investing is that you will get to participate in the success of businesses that exist today and all the businesses that will be created between now and and your time of retirement of if you're buffett then you might not retire ever but when you think about buffett alone he invested in a textile mill berkshire hathaway was a textile mill in the northeast in the us and it was a business under a lot of pressure and eventually that went away in 1980s but look, the same capital that he started with got invested, reinvested, invested, reinvested all the way until Apple. Apple then gave us an iPhone. The capital will find a new and better place to be with the new technology. If it's a new location, it will follow the new location and new opportunities. And when you think about it as an investor, you can participate in the success of those businesses around the world. I'm... I'm very excited about the US. I'm very excited about the whole world. I think there will be a lot of great opportunities ahead with you know, rising incomes and you know the whole consumer world evolving around the world. There are a lot of people that want to have more and better lives. And I think it's all very exciting for businesses that are there to provide those services and goods, whether they're US-based or they're based somewhere else in the world. I think it's a very exciting place to be as an investor. Hmm. And I totally um like like agree with what you say in terms of a lot of times like like for example I I based in Singapore people will feel that oh U.S. markets are very far they can't really understand but like what you say actually more than fifty percent of the profits uh, are already outside of the U.S. and mm -hmm. they are all 
globalize and they all like around our life, right? And that's why investing, even in the US company, it's something that actually is very close to us. All we need to do is to um, really look closer and at the same time really dig into the annual reports of the company. Then um, we can open a lot more investing insights and opportunities around our life as well. I like that. Yeah, you might know a lot about a lot of brands that might not be even local, but they are global already. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious to hear more what you do for investors. I know that you're doing a lot to educate people. Do you mind sharing more? What, what do you do for investors? So for myself, I am a content creator. So I have my own uh, TikTok channel. I have uh, YouTube as well called Aligato Investor. Now, maybe you will be thinking, oh, why, why Aligato, right? Because it's a Japanese. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> I really love Japanese culture. I used to um, do exchange there when I was in uni- university. And there's this term called Aligato money, means like you are thankful for the money. And because of that, you are able to appreciate it better and then it will come back to you. So that's why I call myself Aligato Investor. And I I think that through content creation, I hope to inspire more people to get started their investment journey. And very funny is like yesterday, I went to my friend's house and we had dinner and my friend, uh, I think they educated their kids very well. So at the age of five and seven, the kids already started investing and they wow. made about um about 10% return uh ever since they started and i i think that oh that's pretty impressive so i did a tiktok video together interviewing about the kids a little bit and then some people viewers after they watched this they were like huh but i have no money how can i get started uh mm-hmm. then i re- my reply to them is actually if you think about it investing doesn't require a lot of money to get started you can just buy one share. I think the beautiful thing about US investing is you can get started with just one share. You buy a share that you believe in, a company that you understand. Or if you are not familiar, you can get started with index, right? S&P 500 and all this. And you don't need a lot of money to get started. I just hope mm-hmm. that through all this kind of content, more people will have the confidence as well as the interest um, to, to start their investment journey. And at the same time, we are also teaching like on behalf of Buffer Online School because I also uh, run together with Buffer Online School. We teach a uh, two days investing class completely free of charge on value investing. Hopefully more people can um, really learn how to invest properly rather than just buying and selling based on like stock tips or, or coffee uh, chat with friends or news, right? It's very important to really understand what, what we invest. Yeah. I love that. I think the idea is that start no matter how small. I think yeah. the first step to actually own a little bit uh, even of an index fund and just just let it be and keep on adding to it. And uh, the earlier you start, the better. The more time you have ahead, the better. And then do it consistently and some some wonderful things will happen. And then if you want, you can study more and then you can add actual individual shares as well of companies that you respect and you like. And I think there's a fun feeling about being an owner of a business along with the founders and all the big institutions. You're right there with them. So it's it's a very exciting journey to be on if you're curious to learn and, and grow your wealth. I'm also very curious, Bogumi, do you have kids? No, we're married, but we don't have kids yet. I see. So in the future, how do you plan to uh, impart financial education to your kids? 
So we have clients that uh, have multiple generations involved. And I am learning from them in a way because uh, what I see and some of those uh, kids uh, were our interns at some point. Some of them are no longer kids. Some of them are adults, young adults with their lives. And then, But I've worked with many of them over the last 20 years. I've been in the business almost 20 years. And uh, some of them I remember as, as young and learning and they pursued different careers, but they felt empowered by the internship that they had with us to ask the, the right questions as they became more responsible. So I think my, my big lesson would be is to involve the kids, tell them, share with them some principles, just the way your grandma shared some big, big, powerful principles with you. And I think the best thing you can do is show them. Mm -hmm. So they will watch you. How do you spend your money? How do you invest your money? How do you think about saving and i think they'll they'll watch and learn by example i think it's the best way that anybody can do you know educate people and i think that's what buffett does he really yeah his life is an example and when i really really think about it the goal is not to become the richest person in the world i mean if you do good for you but if you become like munger who has only 140th of munger of buffett's wealth he's very comfortable. And then if you have one hundredth of Munger's wealth, you would be already very comfortable. So when you think about investing, not as Olympics, that you have to be a fraction of a second faster than anybody else, or people don't remember your name, that's not investing. In investing, as long as you have the right principles, the saving, the investing, over time, if let's say you have a year worth of spending saved, put aside, it puts you in a whole different mindset. You might choose to accept a new job or not. You might uh, choose to accept a promotion and stay at the existing company or move on. You have the freedom to to choose. So money is a very empowering tool mm. if if you think about it. And then there's the the fire movement that I'm sure you've heard of, financial independence. Yeah. And and they do the math and they say if you save 25 years of your spending, you could choose not to work again. I think even if you're halfway there or one third of the way there, the fact that you could not choose not to work for five years, I think it gives you a big peace of mind, which is something we started with, quality of sleep. If you have five years saved of spending, any hiccup in your life, you see it in a different way. Any decision, any risk you want to take, any entrepreneurial path you want to take, that wealth gives you all kinds of you know, freedom and choices. Wow, I really love that. And um, uh, like what you say, like kids look up to parents for what they do. And I clearly remember when I went to Berkshire AGM, there are so many other small mini barbecue parties that we can yeah. attend, right? And I was I was uh, at one of the party organized by another investor, Matthew Peterson. And mm -hmm. just nice, uh, Lauren Templeton, she was there. But at first, uh -huh. I did not recognize her. I was just chatting with some of the kids because I was also very curious about like the kids are really cute. I talked to them and I realized this little girl, she had a portfolio that have many amazing company. And I was like, uh -huh. she looks so young. How come she is able to have this kind of like, like investment style and insights? And at that time, I was just thinking, oh, I think the parent must be really good investor. And that's why she is able to like duplicate, right? And then I realized that Matthew Peterson, the the host, was saying that oh, she is the daughter of Lauren Templeton. 
I'm like, uh -huh. oh, okay, no wonder. <laughs> so, so it all it all uh, linked up, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you listened to Lauren's episode on my podcast, Talking Billions, but he share, she she shares the story about her kids and taking them to Omaha, and she also shares the story of her own childhood and receiving uh, shares or buying shares with her parents and learning each about each company that would she would invest in as a child and how it instills in her you know, the interest and the passion for investing, but also a certain discipline and curiosity. Uh, I think there's a lot to to learn from. And it's something that you can definitely pass on. And yes. if kids see you do it, I think it's a fun thing to talk about around the table. Yeah, so. exactly. I look forward to um, seeing you passing on your knowledge to your kids as well. <laughs> in the future, same for me as well. <laughs> So now uh, my last question for you will be um, in terms of like you as an investor, you are very stable, very calm, very successful. Uh, but throughout your life, is there any particular incident that really made you to become who you are today? I think it's fun to look back and see and try to understand why I operate the way I operate. And going all the way to the beginning, I grew up in Poland. And then I went to schools around Europe and then I came to New York and I spent most of my adult life in New York. But Poland, when I was growing up, was a centrally planned economy without a free market economy. So there was no stock exchange for 50 years or so and uh, everything was owned and controlled by the government. Now, what happened was that uh, the country opened up in 1990. A lot of investments came in. The stock market reopened. The stock market went through and 19th century style, you know, volatility of a big bull, big bear market, people made money, lost money, we had hyperinflation, we had bank runs, uh, we had a whole wave of entrepreneurship, new businesses getting started, many of them failing. So I saw similar to COVID three years uh, of time, but actually 30 years of economic history, I saw in that one decade in Poland, a huge change. And I think that inspired my curiosity and how does the economy work? Mm. What can we learn from history? How do the markets work? How the businesses operate? How do businesses succeed? And I could tell that there are many ways to make money, but I was curious how you can preserve it once you make it. And it led me to the path that I'm on, managing family fortunes, where obviously we look at opportunities to grow it, but we're very risk aware and we want to know what kind of risks uh, can and derail the success in, in our case. So that's something that definitely shaped me. And then when I was in college, the dot-com bubble burst. And it was a huge decline in all the major indices. I think NASDAQ was down 80 or 90%. I, I don't remember, but Amazon lost 98% uh, in terms of the price decline. The huge, huge declines. Amazon managed to survive. It's a long story for another podcast episode. Why? And But... Uh, a very successful story that followed and became a, a huge, huge company. But I was at school at university at the time when a lot of my professors lost money in the stock market. And uh, it was actually the worst time to get education from them because they were so tainted by the recent experience. And we talked about bubbles. We talked about all the things that can go wrong in the market. I actually completely ignored the stock market as a career, as an investor. I, I didn't even think about it. And it was only the book by Peter Lynch, One Up on Wall Street, that inspired me to go 
really against what I was hearing at school and seeing the stock market not necessarily as a casino, but as a place where I can go buy a collection of businesses like the ones you were talking about, about Lawrence Kids collecting businesses. And it really opened my eyes and I picked up every single book I could think of. And I came across Buffett, came across Graham and, and Sir John Templeton and everybody else. And I continued to learn. But that moment of of loss and, and bubble bursting, for my professors, it was a message, don't go to the market. To me, it was a message, there are certain things I have to pay attention to, to financially survive in the markets because there will be bubbles and there will be booms that follow. And that's what happened in the last two decades. We had the financial crisis that happened a few years into my professional career after I accepted a job on Wall Street in New York. And I remember vividly those days, I actually had a meeting with the CFO of Tiffany's at the top of a high rise in New York. It was a foggy day and it was close to the day when we had the lowest market read in 2009 in March. And nobody showed up to that meeting. It was just me and one more analyst because everybody was watching their screens. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine the, the panic and the fear that was happening at the time, but I was there sitting with the CFO of Tiffany's as a 20-some-year-old and having an hour or an hour and a half with a business leader. And Tiffany has you know, recovered and grown and, and done very well since. Mm -hmm. So this was a moment where I was learning how there can be huge extremes in the market. And I remember my very first conversation with my future business partner, uh, Francois Sicard, that uh, is one of my business partners at uh, Sicard Associates. And I remember I was a young graduate school student and I had all the questions for him. How can I avoid losing money in the market? And we talked about the Enron scandal that mm -hmm. some of you might remember. We talked about the dot-com bubble. I was just curious about all the places I shouldn't go. Mm. And I think he was so amazed and it was so refreshing for him to see this young graduate that's not asking how I can get rich fast. But I was curious, tell me all the places I shouldn't go first. And it reminds me of Munger that I heard yeah. later on who said, tell me where I'm going to die and I won't yeah. go there. <laughs> and I think that's the biggest lesson in investing. Anybody listening, you know, start no matter how small, and figure out all the places you shouldn't go. And the upside will take care of itself. Will you become the richest person in the world? I hope so. I wish you the best. But even if you are the hundredth or the 10,000th or the millionth person in the world, I think you'll do just fine. Think of it, your specific situation. If you have the five, 10, or 15 years, or even half a year worth of spending saved, put aside, I think it gives you an amazing peace of mind and opens up all the options. I think you're looking at investing in the world differently when you have that kind of peace of mind and quality of sleep. Wow. And I really like, um, from your experience, it kind of reminds me of like, sometimes things may seem bad, like all those experiences that we gone through, for example, you living through Poland, dot-com uh, bubble and all this, it may not be pleasant at that time, but all these experiences shape who we are today. And actually, they are very valuable lessons that as long as we choose to learn from, that's how we make become stronger. And mm -hmm. uh, be it mentally, be it like in the investing arena and everything. And it all just add up. Yeah. And in terms of experience, when you think about it as an investor, all of us learning, right? It's a never ending. Even Buffett and Munger are still learning and now venturing into businesses that they would not be familiar with before, including Apple. 
a, a technology company after all. When you think about it in during the COVID three years that I write about in crisis investing, I think in those three years, we all gained three decades of experience. And it's something that you touched on at the beginning. So when you think about it, there are some years that you can't tell them apart, they look alike, but there are some years when you learn a lifetime of experience. And if it's possible, have those years early in your career where less is at stake because it's less painful to lose a smaller amount, as you can imagine, than learning those hard lessons once you've saved for 10 or 15 or 20 years and then face something that's uh, life-changing. So don't look at it as good or bad. Look at it as a lesson and take away from it as much as possible. And I think we can take away so much from the three COVID years in terms of avoiding certain things, not going certain places, and then just patiently waiting it out and seeing the benefit of it on the other side of it. And it's it's a fun journey. I, I think uh, you know, exciting things are ahead. A lot of innovation, new businesses. I'm 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 all excited about what's what's ahead of us. As an investor, I'm ready to go ahead and buy as long as the price makes sense. Yeah, and I also like the way that you say it's gonna be a fun journey. And it kind of reminds me of like if we view investing as a game that we do not afraid of setback. Uh, and every single time we have a setback, we learn from it and continue to level up. I think like people will find it way more enjoyable. Like they are playing game as if uh, instead of like trying to really like like have war with the stock market, right? <laughs> now make make the stock market your friend. Yeah. And, and- and Ben Graham describes the the market as uh, somebody that goes for big moods, mood swings. Sometimes it's a very excited uh, the market, and then sometimes it's it's very pessimistic. So if you're a buyer, and you touched on it before, if you're a buyer and the market is willing to sell to you something at a very discounted price, you should be excited, although the market is not. So be greedy when others are fearful, and be fearful when others are greedy. Again, quoting Buffett, but I think it's. It's a hard lesson to embrace, but I think it's a very powerful lesson that can help you in life. Wow. Thank you so much for giving me. I think I learned so much from you. I'm pretty sure all my followers here, they all are learning a lot from you. And if they want to find out more about your work, where can they find more about you? They can Google my name, which hopefully you'll have in the notes, Bogomil Baranowski, and there will be my website. There will be my podcast, Talking Billions. You can look up my books. Crisis Investing is the recent one. If you're just getting started, Outsmarting the Crowd is my previous book. That's really good. If you're curious about a big picture, wealth, management, investing, and creating the right environment, Money, Life, Family is a wonderful book that I wrote in between. And... Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. You can look me up online and follow me on Twitter or follow the podcast. There's some wonderful guests that are coming yeah. up and, and now you will be a guest. So I'm very excited to to launch your episode. I think it will be fun for younger investors to see uh, you know, the passion. I think it's contagious to see other investors uh, succeed and learn and grow. I think it's it's a fun journey and I'm, I'm hoping to see more people in in the world of investing. Thank you so much as well for having me in your podcast. And like what you said, there are so many resources that you are you have already documented, you have already provided. All we need to do is to really keep on learning, right? Just every single day, improve that 1%. That's what Charlie Munger say. And then all the compounding will work wonder. Yeah. It's a fun journey. I, I welcome everybody to join us on it.
Thank you so much. And with that, okay, remember to follow uh, Bogumil as well. Continue to follow his work and uh, continue to stay invested and happy investing for everyone. And we will see you in our next video. Thank you. Thank you, Chloe. Bye for now. Thank you. All right, that concludes the conversation for this episode of Real Talk. Thanks so much for watching and all the resources and links regarding Bogeyville's work are actually indicated in the description below. And if you have any questions, thoughts or insights regarding this conversation, feel free to leave it in the comment section below. You may also want to check out some of the other amazing conversations that I had with other investors to continue your learning journey. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button if you haven't and I will see you in the next video. Arigato! Thank you.